looking at Luke chapter 13 from verse 22 down to verse uh, 30 this morning. The narrow door, the narrow door. Uh, we live in a, uh, an age where there are armchair style discussions of all kinds of very weighty subjects. Uh, things which uh, deserve very solemn, uh, careful consideration, uh, treated as though they had the same kind of importance as what we're going to have for tea at night. Uh, switch on the television or the radio. Uh, you hear people talking about uh, end-of-life issues, about abortion, euthanasia, redefining marriage, and so on. And uh, ideas and opinions are scattered like confetti, uh, as though there was no real solemnity uh, in connection with the subject matter that's being dealt with. Even worse when it comes to salvation, uh, even worse when we speak in a, a light manner about people's eternal destinies. To have a, a theological discussion is a great thing. I love to, to have my own ideas clarified by, by talking with someone who's got a different viewpoint and your uh, position can be clarified. But it's very easy when you're talking about theology to have a casual uh, attitude, uh, to adopt a, a, an almost light attitude towards great themes and to domesticate these great themes, to make them become almost like matters of opinion, uh, to discuss them as though you were dueling, uh, hoping to win a victory, uh, hoping to uh, get the uh, mastery of your opponent. Salvation is far too urgent, important a matter to be domesticated down like that. The magazine Christianity Today, a number of years back, uh, ran an amusing little story about a professor of theology from Yale University who went to visit uh, the church in Korea before Korea was uh, separated into North and South. Uh, he told his guy that he wanted to visit uh, a rural church, and so the, uh, the guide went to him to this uh, remote Korean village uh, and was there to interpret for him. Uh, the professor began his sermon, all thought is divided into two categories, the concrete and the abstract. Uh, the interpreter looked around at the congregation uh, sitting on this earthen floor, uh, young children uh, in ragged clothes, old grandmothers with uh, gaps in their teeth, thought for a moment and made a quick decision. Dear friends, he translated, I have come today all the way from America to tell you about the Lord Jesus Christ. And from that moment, uh, the direction of the sermon was firmly in the hands of the translator. Jesus has had a way of dealing with speculative questions. He always turns the discussion back on the one asking the question and presses them on their standing with God. We saw that at the beginning of the chapter, if you look at the beginning of chapter 13, uh, you have people who come to Jesus with a, a kind of speculative question. They want to know whether the men uh, who had been killed in the temple by Pilate were more sinful than any others. 
uh, their assumption is that they were, that they were being judged for their sin. Jesus turns the spotlight on them and says, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Here we have another man who comes and raises what we could ask, we could say is an interesting question. Uh, he wants to know uh, whether there will be only a few people who are going to be saved. Are there only going to be a few people going to heaven? Good question. Nothing wrong with that question. It has its place. Theologians have looked at this question and have come up with their own answer. For example, uh, the Reformed theologian B.B. Warfield, his view was that the number of people in heaven would uh, outbalance, would outweigh the number lost. And he based that on his view of gospel prosperity in the, the latter days when the population of the earth would be so much greater than in its infancy. Good question. But it's not a vital question, is it? Not a vital question. And there are lots of questions like that which fall into the same category. They're interesting. But they can divert us from really engaging with the really important one. How am I with God? You know, there's lots of things that we want to know. Where did Cain get his wife? How old is the earth? What about people who've never heard about the gospel? Will they be saved? Good questions, not vital, and Jesus always directs us from them to considering this vital question. How do you stand before God? Make every effort to enter through the narrow door. Jesus is presenting us uh, uh, with a, a door through which we must travel to enter the kingdom of God, as verse 28 makes clear. And it is entrance through that door, which is the important question, the thing which we have to resolve in our lives. Now, some people need a wake-up call because they get so absorbed in all kinds of questions relating to religion that they end up not seeing the wood from, for the trees. And maybe you're like that. Maybe you are in church and you've got lots of questions, and they're good questions, we could say, but you're not really grappling with the question, which is, am I right with God? Do I know Jesus as my Savior? And so maybe uh, some this morning need to think on that. And maybe others of us need to think about how we present the gospel. Uh, you know, it's good to answer people's questions. We call that apologetics, dealing with the issues that people raise. But we must never neglect the urgency and the forcefulness of challenging people as to how they stand with God. Because that is the question which every other issue turns. Now, on the face of it, Jesus' words are surprising. Make every effort to enter through the narrow door. The other versions have strive to enter through the narrow door. Now, you're quite used to hearing from this pulpit that salvation is not about our works. It's not what we do that earns us a place in heaven. How is it Jesus is saying, make every effort? What about the doctrine of inability? Jesus says, without me you can do nothing. How does that square with what Jesus is saying here? Well, clearly, 
the Bible does not contradict itself. And so we understand the difficult in the light of the, the easier to understand. You cannot, you cannot uh, make effort and you cannot enter the door unless the Holy Spirit is at work, granting a new desire and giving a strength that you did not have beforehand. That is the, the reality. That's the underlying truth here. But you don't know that until you've gone through the door and are looking back. And what you're aware of when you're confronted by Jesus and his claims is a need to make every effort to go through the door. There's a necessity that is laid on you to strive to enter through the narrow door. And so there's a, a corrective here to a false understanding of God's sovereignty that says, well, if I'm going to be saved, I'm going to be saved. It's God's work. I'll do nothing. I'll simply wait till something happens. From our point of view, all we are aware of is the need to strive to enter through the narrow door. This is what Jesus commands. It is also a corrective to the person who thinks that God is far too nice to keep anyone out of heaven. God is there on hand like the NHS to pick up the tab when we're feeling uh, in any kind of trouble. Well, God's not like that, although so many think he is. Uh, Rico Tice of Christianity Explored uh, tells a story of when he was at a dinner party and he was sitting beside this wealthy lady and uh, when she got to know that he was a minister, uh, she felt obliged to talk about religion and so she said to him, well, uh, I like, I'm not, uh, I'm not a, a very firm believer, but I like to think that God is there when I need him. I like to think that God is there when I need him. Rikotais responded, uh, what would you think if your husband said that of you? To which uh, her mood suddenly changing, she said, I would kill him if he said that. But that's how many people think of God. He's there when you need him. Jesus says, make every effort or strive or literally agonize to enter through the narrow door. The Greek word is the word from which we get our English word agonize. It's a technical word. It was used uh, of a wholehearted commitment in preparing for an athletic games. It's deadly serious. Make every effort to enter through the narrow door. Why is that the case? Why is that the case? What is it about this door that means that we must strive to enter it? Well, in the first place, Jesus says it's a narrow door. It's a narrow door, and therefore we must strive. It's a narrow door, and because it's narrow, we'll not enter it thoughtlessly. When the Commonwealth Games came to Glasgow, there was a huge upsurge of interest in athletics and cycling and swimming. It's great. Everybody wanted to be involved. But you know, if when the Games was on, you had turned up and said, I quite fancy uh, taking part in the 400 metres, you would have got nowhere because uh, to take part required a great deal of forethought and training, appearing before a selection board and so on. 
Jesus continually warns would-be followers to think ahead carefully about what following him will be like. Compare the Christian life to a man who is about to build a house. He said, if a man is going to build a house, will he not think first of all if he has enough materials to finish the job? Now Jesus isn't saying that if you become a Christian you'll be left to your own devices. Of course not. He promises to keep us. His Holy Spirit is given to keep us. But what he is saying, if you are thinking about the Christian life in much the same way as somebody standing at the counter of a fast food restaurant is gazing on the menu above the desk, then you're not being real. There is no realism about your approach to discipleship if you come with that kind of thoughtless, heedless attitude. Jesus used other expressions that uh, indicated earnestness in seeking. Uh, There are plenty of people who who came to Jesus and they had only vaguely thought it through. Uh, They had only uh, a mild interest in being a follower. And Jesus gave them no encouragement to come without being in deadly earnest. And sometimes he raised the stakes very high. Uh, He said to a man who wanted to defer following Jesus until he had fulfilled all the rituals of a funeral. Let the dead bury the dead, he said. But you come and proclaim the kingdom of God. It simply goes to show the seriousness with which following Jesus is to be regarded. It's right to count the cost before becoming a Christian. It's right to ask for grace that we might come to that point where salvation is what we want more than anything else in the world. We need to strive because the door is narrow. It needs careful forethought. And also, it is calling us to a life of repentance. A life of repentance. Uh, At the beginning of the chapter, when Jesus uh, first turns the spotlight on people who had Uh, speculative questions he directs them to the need for repentance unless you repent you will all in the same way perish and he is indicating that here also there is a a rigor to the Christian life because of the need for repentance repentance is turning away from yourself to God It's an about turn. It involves admitting to God that you're going the wrong way. You need to start going the right way. It's something that you do at the beginning of the Christian life, but it's also something that you do right throughout the Christian life. John Calvin said the whole of the Christian life uh, comes under the heading of repentance. Repentance means reordering your priorities so that you're giving God first place in your life. It means that the kingdom of God comes before the most pressing commitments that you have. Comes before your comfort. Comes before your family. Comes before your career. Repentance means refusing to give an inch to those 
inclinations that you have which will pull you away from Jesus. It means saying no to greed and to gossip and to bitterness and to jealousy and to rage. It means killing pride and self-righteousness and the love of comfort. It means confessing to God and where it's appropriate, confessing to other people when uh, you have lived in a way that's not in line with the gospel. All these things come under the heading of repentance and there's an energy that's required. There's effort that's required. You will not live a holy life without striving for holiness. And the Bible tells us that without holiness, no one will see God. That's why it requires effort to come through this narrow door. Now, millions of people in the world are deluding themselves with a false, with a superficial view of what it is to repent. In our own community, there are those who think that repentance is penance. And so, for example, <coughs> denying yourself at Lent uh, means making credit with God. As though God is impressed by someone giving up chocolate. And on the other hand, there are people who mock that kind of idea, and yet their view of God is of an indulgent grandfather uh, who's too nice to challenge anyone's lifestyle, and so they call themselves Protestants and live like atheists. And Jesus says to all of us, unless you repent, you will all perish. So strive to enter through the narrow door. We strive because Jesus warns us that we can't be content with a superficial acquaintance with him. He tells us that on the last day there will be people who expect to be welcomed into heaven, who are quite confident that they will be welcomed in because they're familiar with Jesus. And Jesus says, the master of the house will say, sorry, the people will say, we ate and drank with you and taught, and you taught in our streets. But he will reply, I don't know you. Or where you come from, away from me, all you evildoers. Jesus, who is the master of the house, will reject people, not just because they're evildoers, in other words, they've never repented of their wrongdoing, never turned around, but fundamentally because they have never known Jesus. Jesus has never known them. So there's this big difference between knowing about Jesus and knowing Jesus in a relationship. And there are many people who have uh, been brought up in uh, a church atmosphere. You know, they went to Sunday school, uh, went to communicants class, joined the church, took communion, went to Christianity Explored, went on church trips. Uh, they can sing the songs. They know lots of Christians, comfortable in Christian meetings, all this kind of thing. And that can amount to no more than simply knowing about Jesus, being an acquaintance with Jesus. And they've never known what it is to cast themselves utterly on God's mercy and move forward in daily fellowship with Jesus. So Jesus is someone they've known about rather than known. And because they've been content to leave things at a shallow level, because they've never made every effort to move forward, Jesus warns them about this awful day when Jesus will say, I don't know you. 
So the effort is required because the door is narrow. And effort is required also because the door will not always be open. Jesus warns us that there will be a time when the door is shut. And there are three main reasons why it is that the, uh, we may leave off seeking to enter through the door until it's too late. Because I think that this is what uh, is behind Jesus saying that many will try to enter and will not be able to. They will try, but it will be too late. The door will be closed at that point. The door may be closed, we may find it too late, because uh, death uh, interrupts things. Lots of people think uh, of uh, religion as something for, for the elderly. So uh, in your youth, you sow your wild oats, you have a good time, and then you leave uh, the, the kind of dying embers of life for Christianity, for doing the things that you thought uh, you know, were, were right and proper, but they had their time. And like the parable of the, the rich farmer, Jesus, God looks on and says, you fool, this night your life will be required. And so we're struck down with a debilitating illness. Or there's a tragedy while we're on holiday and death interrupts and the opportunity to go through the door is removed. But secondly, we may leave it too late to go through the door because Jesus may return before we have done. Jesus has warned us that he is coming again at a time when no one knows. There's the parable of the foolish virgins who didn't have enough oil in their lamps so that when the bridegroom, that is Jesus, returned, they're not there and eventually find themselves shut out. The only way to be ready for Jesus' return is to go through that door now. And the third reason why uh, we may leave it too late is that God's Spirit may not always strive with us. You see, on the one hand, Jesus says, John 6, 37, whoever comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. So we're promised that if we come uh, confessing our sin to Jesus, we're not going to be turned away. But behind that, again, there is the, the truth that we only come because the Holy Spirit is drawing us. We don't know it at the time, but there is this drawing power of electing love taking us to Jesus and if we don't respond to the Holy Spirit there comes a time when he no longer moves us. We have a kind of regret over our past of remorse but it's not repentance. We become like Esau who got to the point where he had a remorse over uh, selling his birthright but he didn't have repentance. Hebrews 12:16. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterwards, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected, even though he sought the blessing with tears. He could not change what he had done. It's a very solemn uh, part of Scripture. Think about the the dramatic imagery of the ark in Noah's day. Remember uh, when we were looking at that uh, in the evenings, we, we saw how God shut the door. 
And for hundreds of years, Noah had been building this, this great boat. And the people had mocked him. Do you think they mocked him when the flood came? Were they not desperate to get on board? But they left it too late. And the door was shut. We need to make every effort to enter the door. Because there will be a time when the door is no longer open. And thirdly, we need to make every effort. Because when that door is finally shut, it will be eternally shut. It's a terrible thought to be shut out from all that's good and safe and loving and to be eternally forsaken. In the Apostles' Creed, there's a, a debated part of the Creed which says that uh, he descended into hell. And uh, some of the Reformers believe that this wasn't uh, strictly true geographically of Jesus, but it is descriptive of uh, the forsakenness which Jesus experienced on the cross. The agony of being engulfed in the darkness of feeling cut off from God. I suppose we had a, a kind of little, little inkling of, of that sensation in the eclipse, you know, when the dimmer was turned on the sun and the temperature dropped and the birds refused to sing. It was gloomy for a time. And there are glimpses again in human experience of what it is like to be cut off. Um, if you saw the film Gravity, then there's that uh, moment where the astronaut, Matt Kulowski, uh played by George Clooney, uh, gets cut off from the, the spaceship and you see him drifting off uh, into space, definitively cut off, going to a certain death. But the closed door that Jesus speaks of is, is worse than that kind of scenario because in other scenarios, death comes to end the anguish, but to be lost in hell is eternal loss. And it seems from what Jesus says that there will be added anguish in knowing that some that were least expected are brought into heaven. Now, for the Jew, it was to be expected that uh, Abraham and Isaac and the prophets, these and, and the children of Israel, they were bound to be in heaven. But what a shock for them to think that non-Jews would be there also. People from the north and the south and the east and the west would be gathered also. And God's kingdom overturns all of our expectations. Jesus has been giving us these parables of a kingdom which show that uh, his, his rule goes against human expectation. It's the mustard seed and the insignificant yeast that brings change. And Jesus says many of those who are last in this world, in the world's eyes, will end up being first. It's the people who have had nothing to rely on. They've had no religious pedigree. They've got uh, no money in the bank spiritually, nothing that they can take pride in. All they were able to do was to cry out to the Lord for mercy. And God saved them. And they'll be the first. 
You know, if you go to some of the parts of the world where you meet with persecuted Christians and you hear them sing God's praise, you realize who's going to be near the throne in heaven and who's going to be further away. The first, last, and the last first. History will testify that one of the twelve disciples would be cut off but there would be a thief on the cross next to Jesus who would be assured of being in paradise. The door would be opened to him. And for all these reasons, says Jesus, you need to focus on the absolutely vital issue of entering the kingdom. You will not simply drift in. You must be focused, seeking, asking, knocking. And even then it will be of God's free mercy, not on the basis of how sincerely or vigorously you've strived. So let me end just with a a plea to anyone in church this morning who hasn't entered the door, hasn't entered this narrow door. Jesus is is saying, giving us this warning that we might uh, come alive to the necessity of taking action. And making every effort to repent and believe in the good news. Don't be distracted from making this your aim. There are lots of things that we would love to have clarity on. Lots of questions that we would like to have answered. We would like to have everything all stacked up neatly before deciding to trust in Jesus. Jesus is saying that's a great mistake. Place all your effort into turning your back on the world and self and trusting in Jesus. Put the full weight of your hopes on him. Acknowledge that you have been living a life which has not been centered on God and therefore it's been centered on you and you are a sinner. Ask for forgiveness. Believe that when Jesus died on the cross, he died for your sin. Receive his gift of forgiveness. Yield your life to him. Commit to following him. You will have entered that door. Don't believe the lies of Satan who says, oh, you've lived such a a careless and bad life that the door is shut to you. Listen to Jesus this morning saying, make every effort to enter the narrow door. That door is still open. Enter while you may. Amen. May God bless to us.